Debates about environmental policy often revolve around trade-offs, specifically economic growth versus the health of the planet. It's all well and good to try to lower pollution or carbon emissions until you start slowing down the economy and slowing down the rise in living standards. Then again, all the poverty reduction in the world won't last if climate change inalterably harms our way of life. But maybe this trade-off isn't binary. Maybe economic growth doesn't have to harm the planet if we can innovate and learn how to use our resources more efficiently. My guest today is Andrew McAfee, and he has argued that America has reached a turning point in which it can continue to grow while lessening its harm on the planet. Andy is the co-director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy and the associate director of the Center for Digital Business at the MIT Sloan School of Management, studying the ways information technology affects businesses. He has previously co-written The Second Machine Age, Machine Platform Crowd, and his newest book, More From Less, How We Finally Learned to Prosper Using Fewer Resources and What Happens Next. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Jim, thanks for having me on. Now, I, I don't know if you've been following the global voyages of the Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg, who's very worried about global warming. Um, when she came to America and she was talking about global warming and climate change, she said, one phrase really stuck in my brain was she was very worried about these fairy tales of infinite, you know, forever economic growth. And uh, your book sort of gets at that because I think one reason you have people who are concerned about economic growth is they feel we are running out of earth to use, that there is no way we can have a, a, a planet where everybody lives like Americans. That's a very common criticism I hear when I talk about economic growth. You know, we only have one earth and unless you're going to bring in asteroids full of stuff, we're, we are running out of earth. Which people do talk about. Asteroid mining is a topic these days, right? Right. They do. They, they, I, yes. I think we may have talked about it in one of our recent <laughs> podcasts, about asteroid <laughs> mining. Uh, but uh, but uh, so the focus of your book is that we're sort of not running out of earth. That's exactly the focus of my book. And in particular, there's this weird new chapter, I believe, in the debates that go back and forth about resources and economic growth and using up the planet, and more fundamentally, in the, our, the nature of the relationship with the planet that we live on. And that's why I wrote More From Less. But Jim, I want to back up about half a century, because that was the first time that people really started to get worried about using up the earth. Because as you know, you know, between 1968, when Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb, we had the first Earth Day in 1970. The book Limits to Growth was written in 1972. And man, there was a lot of alarmism about very fast population growth in many parts of the world. For sure, yeah. You could look ahead and see what the world's population was going to do. Those people were probably going to want to improve their standards of living. And you could look at the trajectories about resource use and come to some really dire conclusions. And that was the first wave of us thinking that we were going to use up the earth. And when you read Limits to Growth, it is an unbelievably bleak book because the MIT modelers that wrote it modeled the entire world economy and said, hey, we can't we can't model a version of the economy where the world doesn't run out of resources and crash sometime during the 21st century. But one of the things they did in Limits to Growth was in a table in the book, they listed what the known global reserves were of a lot of really important resources, you know, aluminum and gold and petroleum and, and iron ore and things like that, what the known global reserves were in 1972. 
fast forward, here we are just about 50 years later. Here's the weird part of the story. Known global reserves of just about all of those resources are much, much bigger today than they were in 1972, even though we've had a half century of very, very rapid global economic growth. And we have not imported any asteroids full of stuff. That, that's correct. I think we have landed zero asteroids on the Earth, and we have we have mined nothing from Mars yet. So the only explanation for what happens there was that those initial estimates were, were way, way, way too conservative because they underestimated what Julian Simon got right, which is as things become scarce, we go looking very, very hard for more of them. As the price of copper rises because it gets scarce, for example, we go prospecting around the world for copper. And while we do live on a finite planet, our planet is huge. The crust of the earth weighs five trillion times what all of humanity does put together. So there, there is this notion of a spaceship earth that was really thinly supplied and hurtling through the cosmos that came out in the 1960s. Right. It's a really compelling image. I think it's wrong. I think it's extremely unhelpful. If we are smart, and we, let's talk about what it means to be smart. If we are smart, while the earth is abundant enough to handle us, especially because of what I write about in More From Less, which is one version of us becoming smart in the rich world. And I'll talk about America because that's where the evidence is, is the best, where the data is really clear. We are now, no matter how many resources there are in the crust of the planet, we are now using less of them th year after year, even as we grow our economy. Now, that this is one of your this is sort of one of your key findings. Let's just make sure people are clear about exactly what you're saying, and what you're not saying. So you're, what you're saying is not that the rate of usage is declining, but we're actually using less stuff, even though the economy is much bigger. That's exactly what I'm saying. So you could think of two kinds of ways that use of resources could slow down. We could either be using less per person or more striking, we could be using less by all people, by all Americans put together. That's what I'm saying. And I think the evidence is really clear on this. Uh, Jim, I want to be clear. I am not the first person to point this out. I got started on this project in this book because Jesse Ozabel, who maybe you've had on, on your podcast, started pointing this out a few years ago. And I looked at his essay and I said, look, that can't be right. Uh, economies grow and they need more stuff. They need more resources and molecules and materials in order to generate all this prosperity that we enjoy year after year. But I went and double-checked. Jesse was really clear about his sources. And sure enough, he was right. I think, if anything, he was being very circumspect about the phenomenon. I think it is a big phenomenon. I think it's pretty clear in the, in the United States. Other researchers have found it in the United Kingdom. I think it is a rich world phenomenon. And what I want is for the rest of the world to get rich so that it also goes through this resource transition and starts trading more lightly on the planet. In just about all the ways that I can think to care about, we Americans are trading, our, our total footprint on the planet is shrinking year after year. Now, maybe it should be shrinking more quickly, especially when it comes to carbon and greenhouse gases, but we are not fouling up the earth and stripping it bare to fuel our growth anymore. Well, there, just give me a, a couple examples of a couple of, uh, of commodities that we've sort of already hit peak, peak usage and now we're going the other way. Uh, the data are super clear about resources or commodities where we don't import and export a lot of finished goods that contain that resource. So, for example, we don't we can't account for all of the steel that shows up in car bodies that we import from Germany and Japan. Now, I still think we're, we're post peak steel, but let me not talk about that. Let me talk, for example, about 
timber, about all wood products put together, I think we're 30% below our 1990 peak in timber. We are about, I think, at least 20% below our 1999 or 2000 peak in paper. And when you look at the data for paper, you can just see the smartphone age appear. Because for about the past 10 years, our total, again, not per person, our total use of paper has been declining really quickly. Our total use of fertilizer in America is now going down even as our agricultural output measured in tons continues to go up. In fact, agriculture is a great microcosm of this phenomenon. American crop tonnage goes up while water used for agriculture for irrigation goes down, fertilizer goes down and cropland goes down. We have returned an amount of cropland to nature equal in size to the state of Washington since the early 1980s. We are just treading more lightly on the planet. Total energy use uh, in this country has been basically flat for about a decade, even though our economy is, I think, at least 15 or 20 percent. So it's not just that's just it, that's, so it's not ago. just the Great Recession. Not the great no, it's not at all. No, we, we can just throw that hypothesis out. A lot of this was starting before the Great Recession, and a lot of it is really accelerating in the years since the Great Recession. Now, a lot of this book is about is about the role of technological progress and capitalism. But when you started, you, you talked about sort of the emergence of these concerns that we were these environmental concerns starting in maybe the late 1960s and then really in the 1970s. Um, the the sorts of solutions suggested back then were, weren't. Well, we need to have more capitalism, and we need to have more. <laughs> no, were they, the, what no were the, they were not. What were the solutions that were offered back then? And we should be clear, if you looked at the evidence in about 1970, you could get alarmed because our use of all these resources was accelerating as quickly as the economy was. It was growing as quickly as the economy was. In some cases, it was growing more quickly than the economy was. So in the book, I've got a chart of the American economy from 1800 to 1970. And there's a second line on that chart, which is total energy use year by year for that 170-year period. Those two lines are almost indistinguishable. It's like a one-for-one relationship. So you could look in about 1970 and say, look, this, this really can't continue. You know, if we continue to grow exponentially, we're going to continue to strip the earth bare. And you know, I, I know enough math to know that that's not going to work out forever and ever. But Jim, like you point out, the solutions had almost nothing to do with let's have a lot more capitalism and let's have a lot more powerful technology because it was that one-two punch that was causing us to strip the earth bare, you know, all throughout the industrial era. So instead, around the time of Earth Day, there was a set, there was a set of recommendations or strategies for dealing with our planet better that I abbreviate with CRIB, C-R-I-B, because we were told that we needed to voluntarily consume less we needed to recycle. We, need, we couldn't just keep using resources. We had to recycle them. We had to impose limits either on pollution and or on the total size of the population, how many people we were going to allow to exist. And then the B was we had to turn our backs, literally turn our backs on industrial capitalism and advanced technologies and go back to the land, go live in closer harmony with nature. The, Wal and, the Walden Pond scenario. Yeah, the Walden Pond, which is what gave us the whole earth catalog. You know, I've, stalked, mm -hmm. I've talked to Stuart Brand about this and he said all of these urban dwelling idealistic young people wanted to go back to the land, but they had no idea how to do it and stay alive. So I needed to give them access to or, or as P.J. O'Rourke said, just how itchy going back to the land. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, really is man, it, it, it made you really glad for industrial capitalism. Right. 
those cases. But the point I make in the book is that you know, you can go look at the evidence. We did not follow the crib strategies. Americans have not renounced prosperity and, and a growing economy. We do recycle, but that's a separate phenomenon from dematerialization, from just using less stuff. China imposed a, a, a one-child policy. It was a, a massive moral and demographic mistake for the country. And we did go back to the land a little bit, but most people turned right back around and went back to the city fairly but, and, and some people, if they're old enough who are listening, may also recall sort of the uh, the, the famous uh, speech by President Carter, which is called the Malays uh, speech, which seemed to be a lot about, you know, we need to we need to sort of conserve, we need to conserve energy. We need yeah. to turn down the thermostat. We not, basically say you, we're living too well Living too well, and so, and didn't Jimmy Carter wear a cardigan around the very, White House for look good? Look good. Yeah, man. look, he looked sharp, and and but he would turn down the White House temperature in the in the winter time to like you know sixty six degrees was actually kind of uncomfortable. We have not done that in the decades since. We we go right back up to seventy two or whatever. No, we don't. We don't do suffering. So if we, if so if you if you're if you're concerned about the environment, we're using up too much stuff. Uh, you're concerned about the air. You're concerned about carbon emissions, but you don't do suffering. Then what's the alternative? The, the the super weird alternative is to <laughs> embrace exactly the two forces that gave us the, the voracious appetites of the industrial era and the, the voracious resource consumption of the industrial era. They are capitalism and tech progress. And the point I try to make in the book as thoroughly as I can is that something really fundamental changed because for the first close to 200 years of the industrial era, those two forces, capitalism and tech progress, gave us growth at the expense of our planet. And now they're letting us tread more lightly on the planet. So it, what the heck happened? And my super short answer is we invented all these amazing digital tools. And what these digital tools, hardware, net, software, networks, smartphones, CAD systems, artificial intelligence, what these things offer companies is the ability to swap out an atom of one kind or another and essentially replace it for a bit. And because companies are profit hungry and a penny saved is a penny earned, they are taking the digital toolkit up on that offer over and over and over all throughout the economy to the extent that we are now lightening our resource demands throughout the American economy on the planet. And the two things just popped in my head. One, um, uh, that the exact things causing the problem, you know, or the solution to the problem reminds me of sort of this line from the, you know, you know, the Simpsons TV show about Duff beer, the cause of and solution. of <laughs> 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 All of life's problems. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> That's awesome, right? So, so capitalism and tech progress combined are the duff beer of of uh, of our relationship with our planet. And then but I also the think I think of the phrase uh, which uh, I think was coined by Mark Andreessen about software eating the world. Actually, it's sort of it was sort of traditional old industrial capitalism that was eating the world. Yeah. And it's really and it's really software and digital technologies that are, are that are allowing the world to sort of not be eaten and use everything more efficiently. So it actually seems like there's more of it. And, and Mark was talking obviously about yeah, sure. you know business models and disruption, and I think he was dead flat right about that. But it's weird that you're exactly correct. Software is letting us not eat the world these days. Um, uh, and actually, you begin the book talking about uh, about Malthus. And about the about you know the sort of the limit the limits on growth, 
And I would say, so I'll often bring up the, you know, the chart showing that, uh, you know, showing that, you know, from 1800 on that we've had, we started having economic growth and before we never had economic growth and it brought yeah. these people out of poverty. But what you, but again, what you hear is, you know, capitalism created this environmental degradation that's right. uh, and therefore we need to go do something else. And I think that's what young Greta Thunberg was getting at, uh, that we need to do something different. But that, that message that you're sending that, uh, that actually, what we need is sort of a, a more dynamic, technologically advanced capitalism. Unless we're unless we're going to try to go back to nature, that, and, that's and it's a tough message when, to tell some people. And if seven point seven billion of us decide to go back to the land and start burning coal and chopping down trees, we will exhaust the planet. Probably, I haven't done the calculation. Probably in a matter of months, we will exhaust the planet. So that's absolutely a terrible idea. But we need to acknowledge that we did use up the planet and we did degrade it in a pretty wanton way throughout the industrial era. So in the book, in addition to capitalism and tech progress, I am I also talk about two other forces, another pair of forces that's critically important for lightening our footprint that the markets and the technologies will not take care of. By and themselves. it's hard for me to read past the words capitalism technology. Usually that's where I stop. But you know, that's where you stop. Sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put I'm going to put two more. I got to put I know two, there more. Are two more. So please. Please tell me what those other two are. I got to put two more items on your plate. Uh, they are uh, an aware public, uh, aware, for example, and worked up about the fact that we were we were going to kill all the whales. We really were going to kill all the whales in the course of the 20, 20th century, just like we killed all of the passenger pigeons right around the turn of the century. That we needed to be better stewards of these creatures that we share the planet with. Maybe these animals should not be inputs to the capitalist process. I, bravo, thank you for that so much, because I like whales. And the other piece of awareness is that uh, maybe this, all this pollution, all this that's generated by the industrial era, maybe this is more than just a nuisance. Maybe this is an actual health hazard. And when I was researching the book, it was weird for me to learn that right into up until about 1950, pollution was considered a nuisance. Okay, you got a scratchy throat. We didn't understand the dire health effects of smog and SO2 and all this particulate pollution that we had and that was getting much worse in American urban areas. So I so I am uh, in addition to capitalism and tech progress, I am a huge cheerleader for public awareness of these kinds of issues and governments that respond to the will of their people and respond to good ideas. And my exhibit A for this is the cap and trade program that was put in place in America to deal with particulate pollution from industry and from electricity generation. That Cap, Jim, like you know, cap and trade is kind of a market mechanism to put a price on pollution. Then companies will try really hard to lower that cost, just like they lower other costs. And cap and trade has been this huge success. The air over in American skies is 90 plus percent cleaner than it was half a century ago. And the cost of that abatement is, I think, about a fifth of what the original estimates were. So, you know, I, as much as I cheerlead for capitalism and tech progress, I don't stop there. I, I don't think it's honest to stop there. There are two other things that are critically important if we really do want to take better care of our planet. Um, uh, so, so, so the issue isn't just, are we, we're, again, sort of we're using up too much stuff and capitalism and technology have allowed us to, to sort of, you know, you know turn, turn that around. But the, then, of course, the, there is sort of the carbon emissions and climate change issue don't we need are we are, if we're going to need more energy planet wide um as other countries advance 
One, is that true? Are we going to, will we be using as a planet more energy? Oh, yeah. Now? So, oh, yeah. How are we going to, so how are we going to do that without, without, without lots more carbon, carbon emissions in the air? Is that even possible to be a high energy planet without being a high carbon emission planet? Jim, I have one word for you. Nukes. Right. We, we have one energy source right now that is scalable, that is plentiful, that is safe. And, and I know people are going to freak out at hearing that word. The evidence is overwhelming that nuclear power is actually the safest form of power. When you look at all the deaths that have been associated with it over all the years compared to generating coal, uh, burning natural gas or anything. And nukes are non-intermittent. The problem with solar and wind is that it is not always sunny or windy. So we have this amazing technology. And one of my great frustrations is that uh, most of the people advocating for action on climate, which I wholeheartedly support, we're cooking the planet, we need to stop. They are not advocating for nukes, which, which I honestly just don't get. And they are not advocating. Do you think that's a holdover also from the 1970s? I, I think that's. It was birthed in that sort of, and they, and that is that being sort of anti-nuclear. And I, and I guess. I mean, There's a long legacy, what, right? It's, but what are you saying? You're saying that nuclear, nuclear power can help all, not just you know, power our devices, but really power capitalism. And if you don't much like capitalism, why do you want a power source that will enable it? I think there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah, I, th I think all that's accurate. Um, Dwight Eisenhower gave a speech to the UN, I believe in 53, that he called Adams for Peace, where he said, look, let, let's stop making bombs and blowing each other up. Let's take this astonishingly powerful thing that we've discovered how to do and apply it to the peaceful pursuits of humankind. He got, I believe, a 30-second round standing ovation at the United Nations for that. But there were people who said the worst thing we could do is essentially give poor people unlimited free power. We, we, humanity would just use that to strip every single resource from the planet, pave everything with with tarmac, and just ruin the earth if we had cheap power. I just I find that such a deep, deep mistake. Uh, but I think that's part of the legacy, the anti-nuke legacy out there. The the other thing, if if nuclear power is the technology. Uh, silver bullet or the, the most powerful thing we're not doing. On the policy side, on the economic side, I think there's an equally powerful thing that we're not doing, which is putting a carbon tax or a carbon dividend in place. Bill Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize last year, advocated for that in, in a really powerful, intelligent way. We have solved bad pollution problems before. And when you think about greenhouse gases as pollution, Everything becomes a lot clearer to me. Of course, we should be using the low pollution energy sources. Great. But we should also be putting a price on that pollution. That's what worked in the past. We, it's, we know that this playbook works. Why we are not all reaching for it is, is something of a mystery to me. Um, uh, we mentioned nuclear power. But what are some other sorts of innovations you think will likely further the drive toward dematerialization? Uh, I think artificial intelligence is absolutely going to be huge and it's underestimated here. So for example, I was talking to some of the teams and some of the guys at Google, DeepMind and Google, and they tell a story about turning over operations of a Google data center to a machine learning system that had been trained on a bunch of data generated by that center. And the story that I, I heard was essentially that the, data, the existing data center team said, look, you guys, you can run that experiment, but don't expect much from it. We're, we're pretty confident we're close to optimized with the energy use of this data center. They turned it over to machine learning control and the 
overall energy efficiency of the center move re, uh, improved by about 15%. Now, you know, Jim, the old economist joke is that don't pick up a $100 bill you see lying on a sidewalk, because if that were a real $100 bill, somebody would have picked it up by, by now. I hear examples like that. I think there are a lot of $100 bills lying around in this age of deep, deep interconnection, tons of sensors all over the place. And then finally, the promises being coming true that have been made by the AI, the, the machine learning community for a long time. We have these incredibly powerful tools to help us run complicated parts of our infrastructure, not a little bit better, but a lot better. So I think we're just getting warmed up with our ability to use fewer resources, use less energy, generate less waste, just, just be a lot, just quantum leaps in efficiency and productivity when it comes to our resources and materials. Let me let me briefly be pessimistic about what you call your four horsemen, uh, uh, four horsemen of the optimist. Um, tech progress, capitalism, public awareness, and responsive government. But, but when I look at each one of them, I think, okay, tech progress, people are worried about technology and automation and job loss. You have people talking about robot taxes, capitalism. People seem to be down on capitalism, whether it's because of the financial crisis or globalization, public awareness environment seems to always do very low on polls. And I see even the Democratic candidates have sort of been loathe to talk about it in recent years. And then responsive government, we tried doing cap and trade, didn't work. We're not really doing much right now. Why should we be optimistic about your reasons for optimism? I hear what you're saying, and I agree with a bit of it. But I think, Jim, you and I spend a lot of time listening to and participating in elite rich world discussions about <laughs> these kinds of issues. And if you broaden out the aperture- You're more than you, me. You're, you're, you're po <laughs> more powerful than I am. And, and if you look globally, I think you come to some really different conclusions. So globally, how is our enthusiasm for technology doing? There are more smart, there are more mobile phone subscriptions than there are people on the planet. Uh, the The most popular smartphone sold in India last year was about as powerful as the MacBook I was using in 2006. So I, so even though we fret about you know surveillance capitalism and the power of big tech in in elite American circles, the rest of the world is jumping on this bandwagon with with astonishing speed. And uh, capitalism, when you look at the advance or the percentage of people living under free market systems over the past 30 or 40 years, you really have a hard time seeing capitalism in retreat globally. Uh, the public is becoming more aware. I, I, I think that as people become more prosperous, their moral circle expands and they start thinking about taking better care of the animals. Uh, the Chinese have a complete ban in place now on rhino and tiger products. And I believe they're going to put a complete ban in place on the ivory trade. Yeah, I just as, want to focus well. for a second on that because we've been talking about, we've been talking about sort of stuff, um, commodities. We've been talking about, you know, carbon emissions, but uh, but our wild wildlife, flora and fauna, this is part of what you want to preserve. It should be. Well, I hope it's part of what we all want to preserve. Yeah. I mean, unless uh, Stuart Brand and George Church really hit the ball out of the park, extinctions are going to be irreversible for some time to come. And, and that, that's just a loss for the planet. But the conclusion chapter of the book is kind of uh, a litany of some of the most amazing animals that we have wiped off the face of the earth. I do. I really don't want to add to that list. We, and as I said earlier, we almost wiped out the blue whale. There were something like 500 of them left in the world's southern oceans in the early 1970s. There were about 250,000 of them 
in the year 1900. This was just a, just a moral crime, right? Stuart Brand, uh, last time I listened to him, said something fantastic. He said, nature bats last. And if we are just smart enough to get out of the way, to stop doing these things, to stop trading uh, in these product and these animals altogether, to make hunting of them illegal, or to make hunting of them in national parks illegal, to give them a hunting season. We do all these things in combination, and the whales are coming back. The North American bison is coming back. I didn't realize this until I started working on the book. We almost wiped out the white-tailed deer, the turkey, the beaver, uh, the, the black bear. These animals are coming back in America. So if we're just smart enough to, to think about being good stewards and get out of the way and, and set up some protection, nature bats last. Nature has an amazing ability to come back. That's not an excuse to wipe out 99% of them to be of any animal to begin with, but we, we have to watch that we don't just become too dour and too fatalistic about things. I think, uh, I think history encourages a great deal of optimism while making us mindful. Uh, well, that's a good place to ask you this last question. I, I was recently on a panel and some folks who are very, who are very sort of tied into how these issues are discussed here in Washington on Capitol Hill was, was, you know, kind of walking me through, um, what a lot of policymakers are talking about and thinking. And as he's talking, what I started thinking about was none of this is ever going to work until there's an absolute crisis, uh, until, uh, you know, until earth starts to become like Venus nobody is going to do anything. I, I walked out of there very, very pessimistic. Um, so are, are you again, sure about that? Like we, yeah. we had millions of school kids, I think just uh, earlier this week, walk out for a day and demand action. I, I am not so sure that the climate, for example, is going to remain uh, a, a, an unappealing or an uninteresting issue. Uh, Tom Friedman wrote a great column just a little while ago about how a smart candidate now would be running on not the space race, but the Earth race. And, you know, I, I think there's something to that. I, I think we're, we could see the environmental movement 2.0, where it does become something that animates and ignites the public. M my only hope is that we are smart about the things that we're asking for, that we're advocating, that we're demanding from our government. Because if we get this wrong, we, we will actually not succeed and we could have a badly overheated earth in, de in the decades ahead. We, we not only have to be... Uh, passionate. We really have to be smart and evidence-driven about this. Andy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Jim, it was a blast. Thank you. City.